This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to the Open Pediatrics World Shared Practices Forum on Global Health Topics. I'm Judy Palfrey, the Director of the Global Pediatrics Program at the Department of Medicine at the Boston Children's Hospital. Today, we will be addressing the problem of childhood developmental disability. It's estimated by the World Health Organization that over 200 million children have developmental disabilities and fail to reach their full human potential. And that costs society in terms of an estimated 20% loss in adult productivity. I'm thrilled that Dr. Viva Krishnamurthy is joining us today to discuss early childhood delay and disability. Dr. Krishnamurthy is a developmental pediatrician who serves as the executive director of the Umid Child Development Center in Mumbai, India. She has vast experience in providing developmental services and in creating policies that improve the lives of children and families. Viva, we are so pleased to welcome you here. Thank you so much, Judy. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Viva, tell us how it happens that so many children in the world, 200 million, suffer from developmental delay and disability? Um, I know that number sounds staggering when you first hear it and sounds hard to believe. But honestly, Judy, the answer depends on how you're counting the kids. So, for example, most people, when they think of disabilities, are thinking of kids with Down syndrome or hearing impairment or visual impairment, disabilities that very often you're born with. You know, you really can't do uh, anything to predict uh, which children are going to be born with some of these disabilities. Um, but when I talk about disabilities in the context of the WHO figures, I think we are talking about the kind of disabilities which you can acquire. And most often children acquire them in low and middle income countries because they're poor. So for example, if you look at malnutrition, malnutrition is a cause of developmental delays. We know that it has effects on cognition. Similarly, anemia. We know that anemia affects development. So for example, in a country like India, 75% of children under the age of three are anemic. So that's going to have a significant impact on the number of kids who you see with developmental delays. And most importantly, when you're talking about disabilities that happen because you're poor, you're talking about a setting where families are not sure how to stimulate their child's development. So for example, in this picture, we have a child with his older sister who I met in a village in India. And his older sister is 12 years old. The mother works out in the fields. She's minding this little boy who's her sibling. She has no idea how to play with him, how to talk with him, how to engage him in a way that would be meaningful to him. And this is the story of many of the children that we see in low and middle income countries, I think. So Viva, you're talking about early childhood development. Could you tell us you know, what age you're discussing with us? Uh, I think the term early childhood development is open to interpretation. I think um, there are people who see it as up to eight years, up to six years. I think um, when we're talking about it in this discussion today, I'd like us to think about the first three years of life. 
When we see those two children that we just saw, a little boy with Down syndrome, who's one of my patients, and um, the other little boy who I met in a village, both of whom are probably going to have developmental delays, uh, we know one thing for sure, that if we intervene with both of these children early, and when I'm talking about early, I'm hoping the first three years of life, we're looking at better outcomes for both these groups of children. And one of the reasons we want to begin early is because of how much is happening in the brain in those first three years of life. Um, I think everybody knows about the fact that, you know, development of the brain, as it happens, there are new synapses being formed in the brain all the time. I think the magnitude, though, of the connections that are formed in the first three years is um, unimaginable to most people. So making 700 synaptic connections per second after birth and growing to 80% of the adult size um, by three years of age is what we're talking about. Magnificent and beautiful, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it is. And, and what the other thing that I find very fascinating is how exquisitely sensitive the brain is to external stimulus at this time. So if you look at this graph, you can see that if you look at the periods of sensitivity of the child's brain, the peak sensitivity for most areas of development, whether we're looking at language, socio-emotional development, it's all happening within the first two to three years of life. So Biba, um, what happens to these developing brains uh, if they're, uh, under any kind of stress or, or things aren't just going well in families and communities? I think what we call stressful experiences varies a lot. So, you know, there are a lot of children who go through, families go through stressful experiences, children go through stressful experiences, and many times it's normal. It gives families a chance to practice child rearing under stressful circumstances. So for example, if there is a minor illness or there is separation, that's a stress. Uh, most children cope with stress and they can cope with this kind of minor stress if they have a supportive, caring family, they are safe, and their families know how to support them through these stressful events. But the kind of children we are talking about where stress causes developmental delays are experiencing toxic stress, a term that I think comes from the Child Development Center at uh, Harvard. And um, when we're talking about toxic stress, it could be of different kinds. The most common one that I see in India, for example, is malnutrition. So malnutrition um, is a kind of toxic stress because we know that chronic malnutrition affects how children develop. And it is incredibly prevalent. So we know that 45% of children under the age of three in developing countries are likely to be stunted. And if that's the case, that these children have low height for age and that predicts cognitive attainment or how they're doing developmentally, then clearly this is a very prevalent form of stress that causes developmental delays. Yeah, that sounds like an epidemic to me. It is indeed. I think that's a really good way of putting it. I mean, it is an ep epidemic, really. And I think, unfortunately, um, the link between uh, stunting and cognitive attainment is not widely known, as widely known in the lay public and amongst policymakers as we'd like it to be. Um, the other area that uh, we need to focus on, I think, is also 
the need for caregivers to be responsive to children. So that's another kind of stress if you're deprived of that. So what I'm talking about is, um, say we had a child in an orphanage or an institution where, or in a home where um, you know the environment is such that his parents are out at work and the child is left alone for long periods of time. Uh, what the brain expects from the environment is response to what the brain is, um, the way the brain is developing. When we're talking about the brain being experience expectant, um, what I mean is that when a child makes an overture towards a toy or something else in his environment or a person in his environment, it's really important for that caregiver to be attentive, available, and respond to that child's overture. So, you know, you hear the term that your child's brain is a sponge. And that's a term that I absolutely hate because a child's brain is not like a sponge. It's more like a game of tennis where, you know, there's constant uh, back and forth between the child and the caregiver. So if you look at this graph, you can see that uh, there are two sets of parents here, two sets of mothers, if you will. This was a study done on 40 mothers where they tracked how they respond to their child, how responsive they are, and what happens to the child's development in low responsive mothers versus high responsive mothers. And it's really interesting to see because this was a fairly homogenous population. So the difference in language levels between the two groups is really based on how did these mothers pick up cues from the babies and response to their, respond to their interaction. We would like to turn to the audience now and ask a question. When you respond, can you please leave your city and country location? The question is this. Please tell us if you're encountering developmental delay and disability in your daily work, and what structures you have for addressing the problems that the children and families face. And now we return to the conversation with Dr. Krishnamurthy. Now, Viva, with all these challenges to the young brain, and those are pretty dramatic what you showed us, is there anything that can be done to improve the outcomes um, Judy, it's so interesting that in the last couple of decades, I think there's been so much literature around how brains can change, especially the younger they are, the more likely they are to change in response to you know, input from the outside. So this is neuroplasticity we're talking about. It's the ability of the brain to change and modify itself based on the experiences it has. And brain plasticity, as I said, is maximum in the first couple of years of life. So interventions that begin early, like the one we're going to talk about now, are actually a great way to prevent developmental delays. So what I'd like to tell you a little bit about is a study which began many years ago, in 1990s actually, the Jamaica Experimental Study. And in this study, what they did was they took four groups of children who were stunted. They had low height for age, and they were in the age group of 9 to 24 months. They had a fifth group of kids who were not stunted, who were not malnourished at all. And of these 129 kids that they picked, the four groups were decided based on the intervention they got. So one group was a control group. They got no intervention at all. Another group got a nutritional supplement. And the third group actually got 
uh, stimulation. And when I say stimulation, a health worker would come home once a week, talk to the parent about the importance of talking and playing with their child and how they could do it and how they could even feed their child in a way that was responsive to the child's overtures. And the fourth group actually got both the interventions. Now, what was interesting was the immediate outcome of this study was what you can see in this graph. So the red line actually is the group that was not stunted at all, and you can see the developmental quotient of these kids was way better than that of the other groups, all of whom were stunted. But what's interesting is that you were already starting to see the differences between the groups. The group that actually did really, really well and the best and seemed to have an additive effect was the group that received the nutritional supplement as well as the stimulation, as in parents were taught how to engage with their child, play and communicate with their child. The group that got some nutritional supplement showed some gains better than the control group, and in between was the group that received just the stimulation intervention. So already the jury was in on this one, that the kids were going to do much better if they received developmental stimulation along with supplementation. But what was really interesting was that these children were followed up at several uh, several intervals. So for example, they were followed up after four years, then again after about seven years. So at various ages, they were followed up. And pretty soon at the four-year follow-up itself, it was clear that only giving supplements to kids who were malnourished was not making a difference. And these kids were not catching up. They were certainly not doing better. And by the time the children were 17 or 18 years old, the stimulation group was doing much better across many parameters. They had higher reading, vocabulary scores, IQ scores, um, less problems, less mental health problems, less depression, less anxiety, higher self-esteem. And the supplement alone group had fallen off to the level of the control group, actually. There were no differences. And uh, when the children were 22 years old, the same effects were seen, but again, better job placements, fewer uh, fights, fewer violent behaviors, uh, all kinds of uh, positive differences between the two groups. And most recently, what we had was a study looking at the income of the group that received the stimulation way back. And now we're talking about 22-year-olds, right? And what it showed was that their income was 25% higher, their earnings were 25% higher than the control group, and they had actually caught up with the non-standard group. So this is um, you know, one way to show that a simple psychosocial stimulation, something that you teach parents to do at home, a style of parenting that they can learn, even the poor families that they worked with, can have a dramatic effect on communities in terms of how well these children do. And this fits, as you, as you know, uh, with much of the literature showing that early uh, stimulation really makes a big difference. Here in uh, Boston, we did the Brookline Early Education Program right. and followed the kids till 25, and, and uh, that magic uh, difference was, was there. So I'd like to turn to the audience again and ask a question. When you respond, can you please leave your city and country location? The question is this. Please let us know about projects that you have encountered, like the Jamaica Project, that have showed success in improving the chances for children with developmental concerns. We're back now. Viva, 
The Jamaica study is exciting, and it gives us evidence that developmental interventions are effective, especially when paired with the nutritional input. What do we know, though, about the availability of effective interventions that practitioners can put into place in their own contexts and settings, not, not as a study, but as a real activity that they can do? Um, I think various countries have used various intervention programs. In fact, uh, if we look at the Lancet series, they've identified some common properties of programs that are successful. So, um, for example, if there is a program that addresses the zero to three age group, but in particular focuses on disadvantaged groups. So we know, for example, a child with a known developmental disability or um, a home where the mother is depressed, we know that these are higher risk children and there is a focus on these especially disadvantaged groups. Um, those programs are more likely to be successful, uh, starting younger, obviously. A program where the staff receives systematic training in how to do this, because really we're talking about coaching families and using a, a strengths-based approach to teach families uh, a parenting style that this, that's going to become part of their parenting style forever. And it needs to be consistent with families' cultural beliefs, what they practice already, and it can't be something that's too alien to their context. So these are some common properties. And of course, once you start thinking about how are we going to take this to scale and how do we make this something that needs to be a national program, then other things come in because then we need to start thinking about how do we integrate, for example, nutrition and early childhood development. Often they sit under different ministries in most countries and you know how do you get people to cooperate across sectors or for example is there policy related to young children in that country how do we create policy action related to that so i think there are different issues for each of them but um broadly for programs i think we know what works and uh, one example like a, that i'd like to uh, give is an example that we've used at umid uh, has been uh, the Care for Child Development. So this was a package that was many years in the making and has a lot of solid science around it. Uh, it this started, I think the making of it started in the 90s, uh, but it was most recently published in 2012, and this was jointly by WHO and UNICEF. And it's a package that is geared towards training health workers in how to teach families to intervene, to play, interact with their child, communicate with them, and feed them in a way that is also responsive. So it sort of combines nutrition as well as play and development um, in, in the same package. The training itself is really interactive. There are lots of opportunities for role play. And most importantly, it allows the community workers to practice their skills in a safe setting. So they're being supervised as they're doing these practice sessions with live children and families uh, within the context of the training itself. And like I said, it really focuses on identifying strengths with parents and has a cascade effect. You know, if the community worker identifies the parent's strengths and works in a very positive, uh, you know, strengths-based approach, um, the parent uses the same with the child. And uh, that really is an effective form of intervention. And the package is you know, freely downloadable. It's available on the WHO and UNICEF websites. Uh, and it contains every layer that you could want. 
It has the facilitator's notes, the participant's notes. It has CD-ROMs with videos that you can show. It has little cards that the community worker can use when they're going out to the community and they, you know, they need a quick check on what am I going to tell this parent of a one and a half year old child. They can look at the card and give that recommendation and advice. And it also has red flags for when they must refer for an assessment for a disability. So it's a very comprehensive intervention that can be used effectively. I've had a chance to look at uh, some of these cards, and they're just absolutely wonderful and simple. They're, they're iconic pictures that anybody can say, I'd like to show to the mother this is a good time to introduce a, a little toy, or this is a good time to uh, maybe play uh, a, a, some other kind of game or to use some kind of, uh, 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 as you say, feeding stimulation. So it's seems very, very practical. Yeah. It is, and many countries have actually translated it into their own languages, uh, adapted the pictures to be more appropriate for their context, and uh, it's a very effective um, way of building awareness about child development. Um, and actually, there's a very solid data to prove that this kind of intervention works. So for uh, the CCD itself, the WHO's Care for Child Development, um, there have been studies in Asia, in Central Asia, um, in India and Pakistan, uh, and looking at child development measures, looking at how parenting styles change, how parental knowledge, how they practice um, you know, some of these interventions, many of these changes have actually been measured and studied, and um, it's been found to be effective. So we'd like to turn to the audience now to ask another question. When you respond, can you please leave your city and country location? The question is this, who, what types of professionals, what types of uh, individuals have access to children under three in your country? And we're back now with Dr. Krishnamurthy. And Viva, you might want to comment on the question as well. So Judy, for most people in um, high-income countries, it comes as a surprise to hear, for example, that in India, most children under the age of three would not access a physician unless they were really, really sick. So we don't really have well-child care as the norm in our country unless and until we're talking about immunization. And immunization, not um, not not too uh, infrequently happens uh, in a camp. You know, there would be a hundred children lined up and there would be one nurse jabbing all of them. So really the people who have the time and the ex access to young children under the age of three would be village health workers or community health workers who are going out into the community and are often people from the same community who are working with these families and are talking to them. So it's very important for us to know who these people are in various countries so that we can target where we want to place our intervention, who learns the intervention and then is able to access parents of young children. So when I've uh, talked to care providers and you know uh, policymakers even in low and middle income countries, uh, I come across um, many common issues in, in a lot of low and middle income countries. Um, so for example, many people will tell me that my country has a policy that includes children with disabilities, but um, it's not a priority. 
and you know, uh, particularly early childhood development is not a priority. Or I will hear things like, um, yes, we do have data on children with disabilities, uh, but services to back that data do not exist. Or for example, um, the commonest thing that I'll hear is uh, lack of technical expertise. You know, who's, if I identify children with disability, who's going to serve those children? Who's going to help those families? And particularly in underserved areas, especially in rural areas, this is a big challenge. And um, a lot of myths and superstitions around why children are delayed, why children have disability. I think that's a common one for um, a lot of countries and associated with that similarly is the stigma of having a child who's different in any way. So one of the biggest barriers for um, low and middle income countries particularly is that there is no uh, internationally standardized tool that can allow you to monitor early childhood development. So it's a well-known fact that, um, and there are lots of studies to back that, that in low and middle income countries, uh, families often don't know what typical child development is. What's normal? When do I tell if my child is delayed? They know their own children very well, but they don't know what the norm is. So to be able to pick up that your child is developmentally delayed is often a challenge for the um, caregivers. So Viva, you and your colleague Yogi Ertem in Turkey have been working very hard on the question of how to prevent developmental delay by screening for problems or for trying to pick them out, as, as you're mentioning. Please give us some information about the work that you're doing. Um, so the idea around monitoring and supporting child development, uh, particularly in countries where this high-risk population um, is, is in huge numbers, was the goal for standardizing the Guide for Monitoring Child Development, the GMCD, that we've been working on together. Dr. Ilgi Ertem from Turkey, uh, plus uh, myself in India, plus our colleagues in Argentina and South Africa. So it was a four-country project, and um, the GMCD as a tool was meant not just to screen, so when you're thinking about screening children, we're talking about a cross-section. We're talking about a snapshot. But when we're talking about monitoring, we're really talking about a video rather than a snapshot. So a continuous idea of how children are developing across time. And naturally, this has to be with a care provider who sees the child over a period of time. So in that case, the most important thing about the GMCD is that it focuses on how to catalyze that relationship between a caregiver and a care provider. So you need to be able to have the dialogue with a parent or whoever the caregiver is to understand how that child is developing over time. So this was a tool that was a long time in the developing, 20 years, and um, the last five years, we just completed the last five years where we standardized the tool uh, in four different countries and validated it uh, on a population of over 10,000 children. And, um, the interesting thing about the GMCD is that the questions are all open-ended. So it begins actually with explaining what child development is. So for example, in India, the word, word for growth and development is pretty much the same for most people, colloquially. So to explain the distinction between what you mean by development versus growth, you begin with saying, you know, we talk about your child's growth, 
quite often, but today we're going to talk, up, talk about a child's development. And when I say development, I'm talking about how she learns, how, to how she expresses herself, how she understands, how she makes uh, relationships with other people, how she moves her body. Uh, you know, you know your child's uh, development the best. Could I have a few moments to talk to you about your child's development? And then you ask the first question, which is really the only closed-ended question in the entire questionnaire, which is, do you have any concerns about your child's development? And then all the rest of the questions in the GMCD actually are open-ended questions. So you begin with saying, tell me how your child communicates with you. For example, when she wants something, how does she let you know? Now, the mother answers in long sentences, but the answers are coded on your question, on your uh, form, so you know um, whether the child is developing in an age-appropriate manner or not. So it becomes a good way to monitor how the child is doing over time. Now, over the past 15 years, you and your team have been creating services for children with disabilities and their families in Mumbai. We'd love to hear from you about Umid. Could you tell us a little bit? Sure. So oh, and I have to interrupt you because okay. you, you told me that umid is the word for That's hope. correct. The word means hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, so at Umid, uh, we began with being a service delivery organization for children with disabilities. But quickly we realized that the second group of children, the children who are often unrecognized as children at risk for developmental delays and disability, was an area that we wanted to work in. So the, what we focused on is a program called the Early Childhood Development and Disability Program, our ECDD program. And this program actually sees disability as the end of the spectrum. So if you see a child, the two children that we were talking about earlier, the child with Down syndrome and the child with developmental delays because his mother is out working in the fields and he's likely to be malnourished and anemic, they are just parts of a spectrum. So keeping that in mind, what we do is that we first teach our community workers who are usually mature women from the community itself. They're about 15 to 20 of them, depending upon the size of the community. And each of them has a caseload of about 40 to 50 families. And they do weekly home visits. And what they do is that they talk to families about promoting early childhood development, how to play, communicate with their child, how to feed their child. Then they learn the GMCD, which has been translated into three Indian languages. And they use the GMCD to monitor the child over periods of time. And when they identify children with delays, they work closer with those families to promote child development. And they also know um, all through this, actually, there is a piece where we help them map and identify local resources and identify even government and non-government resources that they could access, especially for children with disabilities. Well, it's a beautiful program, and all that you do is just fantastic. Thank you for sharing with us. And thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you, Judy, for having me here. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.